smart money knows the game they're playing. They're playing a long game. They are aware of macro. They respond to macro, but they don't freak out. They understand that there are cycles and that things come and go. But the dumb money, the so-called tourists, they see this change and they're like, oh, the sky is falling in and the game has changed and you have to do things totally differently. And of course, that's nonsense. When I started at Google in 2006, it felt like jumping 10 years into the future, which is why the Startup Podcast is delighted to be partnered with Google Cloud. Your startup can live in the future too with Google's clean, AI-forward cloud platform. Their startup programs are the best in the business. Get up to $200,000 worth of credits alongside support and training from startup experts. Go to google slash TSP, that's G-O-O dot G-L-E slash TSP for the startup podcast to learn more and access all the best offers. You're listening to the Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. And I'm Yaniv. And in this episode, we're going to discuss exactly what you need to raise seed funding for your startup. In particular, we want to refute some really bad advice founders seem to be getting out there right now. And so we want to talk about that directly and talk about what you actually need and how you might actually go about raising seed for your startup. Chris, I can't wait to get into this one. But just before we get started, we did want to remind you all that the Startup Podcast is hiring for a couple of part-time contractor roles a growth marketer and a content creator who is focused on copywriting, who can turn our podcasts into written learning material, and someone experienced in building, running a merch store. These are paid gigs, so if you love the startup podcast and think you could be a good fit, hit us up on LinkedIn. And before we get into it, another continuing apology for my voice. I know it's a little husky, and I hope it's not too distracting. Hopefully getting a little better each week. Very privileged, Chris, that you have come out of your five-day vow of silence to record this episode. How was that for you? You know, it's, it's really weird, you know, through my life, I've imagined as kind of empathy exercises what it might be like to lose my sight or lose my hearing. I've never really imagined what it's like to lose my voice. And it turns out your voice, the sound of your voice, the strength of your voice, the rapidity of my words and how I communicate are really intrinsically linked with my identity. It's been a bit of an existential crisis for me, so it's been a very interesting journey. Your voice is your passport. Verify me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for prioritizing the startup podcast audience and using your precious vocal resources on all of us. So, yeah, I wanted to bring up this topic. Obviously, you know, we're recording this in March 2023. The startup funding environment has changed. The fundraising environment has changed. There is talk of extinction events for startups and all sorts of stuff. I talk to a lot of founders. Some of them I've invested in at Pre-Seed. Some of them I just know who are looking to raise their seed round and they're getting a lot of bad advice, usually advice that is quite discouraging at the moment. I think there's a sentiment that the bar has been raised for raising a seed round and that's perhaps true. But what has not changed is that a seed round is still a seed round that has a certain set of characteristics. And I'm getting advice like, 
oh, you need to have a certain amount of revenue or, you know, you're an enterprise sales company, you need to have signed contracts and stuff like that. This sort of strong emphasis towards financial metrics at seed, which I think is absurd. I think most serious seed state investors understand the game they're playing. And so this episode is really, for me, about trying to punch back against the prevailing narratives that seem to be taking place about what it takes to raise its seeds. And it's not a picnic by any means, but all those founders out there at least understand what it looks like to raise its seed and what is important and how to tell the story for that. Let's just call it what it is, Janev, the smart money versus the dumb money, right? Yeah, it is. It is. It's the smart money versus the dumb money. And that's always a dynamic. You know, we had our three-part series on capital raising that we recorded last year. It's all three of those are amongst our most popular episodes. So we know this is on a lot of your minds. But what happens, I think, especially now when we've had this kind of change in the macro environment and this change in sentiment is that the dumb money freaks out. So the gap has never been larger, right? Smart money knows the game they're playing. They're playing a long game. They are aware of macro. They respond to macro, but they don't freak out. They understand that there are cycles and that things come and go, that we have periods of ebullience and periods of less capital availability. But the dumb money, the so-called tourists, they see this change and they're like, oh, the sky is falling in and the game has changed and you have to do things totally differently. And of course, that's nonsense, right? Or worse, they think this is an opportunity to get more and screw startups a little bit better and take a bigger piece of the pie. It's not even necessarily that they're afraid, but rather they're opportunistic. And that's even worse. There's two types. I think there's the afraid types and the opportunistic types. But I would also say this term correction, I think, is very valuable. There's a reversion to mean happening here. And if you say that valuations are coming down, which is true, or that perhaps term sheets are giving more control clauses to investors, which is also true around things like liquidation preferences or anti-dilution rights, that sort of stuff. That's also true. That's not necessarily greed or opportunism. That is a reversion to the mean. And, you know, the smart money who had to invest in 2021, I remember complaints then that companies were overvalued, that founders had too much control. They also said, you have to play the game that's on the field, right? And it's actually the dumb money who ran up valuations, who gave founders too much, that availability of zero interest rate capital, right? That meant that founders were at too much of an advantage. And, you know, I'm a founder and it feels great to be able to raise lots of money without trying very hard, but... Ultimately, it actually sucks for everyone because it causes this real distortion, this real lack of discipline. I think it's important to say valuations have come down. The balance of power has shifted more towards investors. But actually, we're really at a phase where things are not strongly favoring investors. I'd say we're back to neutral. But when you've been in this period of like hyper founder friendly times, neutral feels kind of harsh. So Yanev, I mentioned last episode that a founder asked me to evaluate their product and asked, is my product good enough to raise my seed round? And I said, well, it's not about how good your product is, it's about how good your traction is. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what actually you need to raise a seed round. What are investors looking for at the seed stage? So just maybe a tiny bit of context setting first, what we mean by a seed round. Names have changed. There's been this funny sort of inflation, right? Series A used to be the very first round that you raised. And then as those Series A's got bigger, as the industry got more mature, we introduced seed rounds that came before Series A. 
And these days, it's pretty standard to raise what's called a pre-seed round before your seed round. And the pre-seed round is a bit like what may have once been called the family and friends round, although often now there are professional investors getting involved. Pre-seed round is when you don't have much more than an idea, some very basic validation and your own personal credentials. That's the money that gets you off the ground. So the seed round is the second round that you raise typically these days. And a seed round is typically raising maybe $500,000 to the low millions of dollars is typically the size of a seed round. And the aim here is really to take that money and that very basic amount of validation and to do some serious de-risking. And I think definitely if you haven't done so yet to get your product out to market. To me, what you need to raise a seed round is some sort of advantage or de-risking Chris used the word traction, which I think is probably the largest category, but perhaps not the only category of advantage or de-risking. We've used the term de-risking before. It's not our term. And just to remind you all, like the name of the game when you were talking about venture capital is this iterative process of raising capital, de-risking, raising capital and de-risking, right? Because you have this idea that could be a billion dollar idea, but there are a lot of risks around that. Most of the time it doesn't work out. Every time you raise capital, you should be significantly increasing the probability that you will get to that billion dollars. So what types of de-risking could you have at the seed stage that are relevant? So one is customer traction, right? That can be users or a lot of interest of some sort. You can see that there is some sort of pull from the world out there. You can talk about various types of validation, which I guess is a little bit upstream of traction, where you've done some really meaningful research into the market, into customers, and learned something about the world that is not commonly known that you can really leverage to build your startup. You can talk about IP, right? Especially if you're on a deep tech or deepish tech sort of startup, you know, you're actually building a technology platform. What have you got that belongs to you? Now, when I say IP, I don't necessarily mean patents. I think patents are pretty rare at the seed stage and not necessarily that valuable in themselves. But what do you have? Have you built a bunch of software? Have you, for example, to talk about what's currently hot, AI. Have you built something using AI that is not just off the shelf, right? You've built a new piece of software that does something that no one else can do. Even if it's not in market, even if it's pre-product, do you have that IP? Another thing that's particularly common with enterprise type software, most enterprise startups at pre-seed still haven't made a sale or have made very few sales. But what they should have, or often will have, is pipeline, right? How many companies are you talking to? How much interest are you getting? Are you getting letters of intent or memoranda of understanding or whatever it is? Whatever sort of thing that really shows that you are getting genuine interest and not just conversations that are going nowhere. And of course, the final type of advantage or de-risking, which is perhaps the gold standard, is revenue. You're making money. Revenue tends to be thought of as honest, right? Like if people are willing to pay you for your thing, then it has some value. Now, when I talk about the bad advice that's out there at the moment, it's normally about compressing all of those different sources of advantage and saying, the only one that really matters is revenue. If you don't have revenue, you can't raise seed. And I politely submit that is total bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the first item you mentioned was traction. Most founders confuse traction with revenue. They are not the same thing, right? Traction is interest, it's engagement, it's signups, it's active users, it's teams using the product. It is not necessarily about having converted that interest or that usage into money. And it's equally important to a seed stage round as revenue, or I should say it is more likely that you have traction than revenue at a seed stage. And anyone telling you that you need revenue 
instead of traction is wrong, plain and simple. The other thing I wanted to touch on was this point about IP, Nev, which you mentioned as a potential signal for seed funding. IP is not having built some software. I will hear founders outside of Silicon Valley talk about, you know, we have really great IP. They'll even refer to IP as the content they've written or the team they've gathered, which team is an interesting signal for seed stage, but it's not IP. The point I'm really making is that it's rare that you actually have something proprietary that crosses the threshold to being classified as IP. IP tends to be hard tech, hard science, like a large language model that only very few companies have in the world, or an incredible piece of silicon that you've manufactured that no one else has, or self-driving computer vision. So just be careful about classifying what you have as IP. I would just add one other category of IP that I think is important, which is proprietary data. And I think, you know, especially in the world of large language models, I think there are a lot of AI startups that are like, oh, we can just use OpenAI, which is magical, and we can create something that looks magical. But in fact, what OpenAI has done is commodify large language models. And so often the source of advantage comes around, you have proprietary data sets that you know how to use. But again, the threshold for that is high. It is. So you'll have founders who say, well, we've collected some really interesting early data, or we've been running at an Australian scale, early seed stage Australian scale, and we've collected some really interesting data points. That's not IP. Just to be clear, when I talk about data, I'm not talking about learnings, knowledge type data. I'm talking about data sets that you can feed into your product that no one else has access to. But it has to be data at scale, insurance company scale, medical lab scale, huge corpuses of data that you can train an AI on. The main point here is be very careful about what you classify as IP. Absolutely. Because most of the stuff I hear classified as IP is not IP. Yeah, well, here's the interesting pattern I've seen. Pitch decks that focus on IP don't have IP. The ones where I've seen that have genuine IP often don't realize they have it because they focus so much on the outcome, which they may not have realized yet. They haven't closed a sale yet. But actually, in getting to that point, they've developed significant, meaningful IP and pointing that out to them is often valuable. I find founders who have done that, who've spent way, way too long in R&D, actually just means they've been building a really overblown piece of software with too many features and too many nooks and crannies and none of it's been productized. And they go, oh, we have amazing IP. It's like, well, no, what you have is a bunch of code that hasn't been validated as a product. Right. And so really just very careful. There's a high degree of skepticism about what IP is. The last thing I'll say is that traction should not be confused with revenue, but it should also not be confused with media coverage, government grants, and academic studies or endorsements. Traction is people who give a shit about your product at some kind of scale or in some kind of repeatable way. It is not about institutional validation, typically. Now, if you're launching a drug, then certainly some kind of academic study is useful, or if you're doing some kind of government software, and certainly government departments buying it is useful, although that's still a very difficult play to do. If you're doing something for media companies, then certainly media engagement is useful, but getting on the six o'clock news or winning a grant or having some random university doing some random study is not traction. It's vanity. It's vanity and it's spinning your wheels. The first principle is de-risking. If you think about the different stages of capital raising of a startup, of a venture-backed startup, 
you have to start with the idea that you're going to be venture scale. What is venture scale? Depends, but at least hundreds of millions of dollars in valuation to be interesting to venture capitalists. And you might start, you have an idea and you have a 1% chance of being successful. By the time you get to pre-seed stage, maybe you've got a 2% chance of being successful. By the time you get to the seed stage, you might be wanting to say, well, I've got a 10% chance of being successful. At Series A, it's a 25% chance and so on, right? So de-risking means decreasing the risk of failure or conversely and equivalently, increasing the probability of success from very, very low to very low to low and so on, because they stay low for a long time. And so you need to convince yourself that you have done something that has significantly increased your chance of success. You have meaningfully de-risked your startup. You need to convince yourself. And then you need to come up with a narrative that is convincing to at least some investors out there that you have done that too. You connected venture scale to kind of venture valuations, but I would say prior to the valuation, your idea or your software needs to believably have line of sight to venture scale in terms of the problem it's solving and the users who will adopt it. And so media coverage, government grants, and academia don't validate venture scale. They validate anecdotal curiosity from people who want to basically do something fairly academic. You need to prove venture scale in terms of the problem you're solving and the market you might eventually be able to tap. And so you want to get away from academic signals or anecdotal signals to signals of repeatability and scale. When you say de-risking, I think many people outside of the startup game, outside of Silicon Valley, think of media and government grants and academia as de-risking. The question is de-risking what and how? And the thing you're trying to de-risk is to show repeatable interest from actual users, not trying to show that academics or people who cover stories for a living are anecdotally interested. Yes, it's about de-risking, but what does de-risking mean? It means connecting it to actual usage and value creation, not the whims of someone who doesn't have to pay for it or use it long term. Just to your very final point there, again, the worst advice that's out there right now is you have to have revenue. You should have a line of sight to revenue, but you don't have to have revenue. What you do have to do is have people investing and showing commitment. You know, we had Nirayal on a couple of weeks ago and he talked about that hooked cycle and that important aspect being investment, that the more people use your product, the more valuable it becomes to them, that they're using it over the long term. I think that's a really great example of the sort of traction that you will eventually be able to monetize, even if you're not monetizing it right now. Absolutely. The Startup Podcast is brought to you by Google Cloud. We use Google Cloud at Circular, and I'm happy recommending it as the best cloud platform for your startup too. Go to goo.gle slash TSP for the Startup Podcast to learn more and access all the best offers. So let's move on to the next bit, which is telling the story. And I think, you know, pitch decks at different stages, at different rounds, they still overall have a similar structure, but there are significant differences. So when we're talking about telling the story at seed stage, what are some of the things we need to do? The first aspect and the thing I see people do wrong the most is overcomplication. Do not overcomplicate it. And this goes back to general good storytelling, but more significantly at the seed stage, you don't have that much yet. It might feel like a lot to you, but you don't want to run in 50 different directions. What you want to do is exercise the same focus and discipline that hopefully you're actually exercising and running your startup and saying, this is the de-risking we've done. And you could use the term de-risking or not, but you want to basically paint your vision of where you're going, right? That's the big vision. That's the venture scale vision. 
And then you want to talk about the milestones, the meaningful milestones you've achieved on the way to that vision and milestones. Once again, I know we're hammering this. A milestone is a meaningful de-risking. If you say, look, we've done this, we've got customers who are growing. We've got low customer acquisition costs. We've got letters of intent from a couple of large enterprise customers who seem very serious about using us. We've got, and Chris, you're absolutely right. It's a high bar. We've got this IP that we've somehow validated with the market. I think that helps. We have something that has de-risked us. And just talk about that. And usually it's only going to be one or two things. So again, don't peanut butter your presentation by trying to fit a huge amount on your slides and talking about 15 different ways you've de-risked. Because frankly, if you've waited till you've de-risked in 15 different ways, you've probably waited far too long. And I don't believe it. So I don't believe you. Don't be too speculative. Be concrete. We've talked about writing pitch decks a couple of times on the show. And I still see two key narrative problems over and over and over again. So I want to emphasize them here. They're particularly important for a seed deck. The first is a deck should really start with only one of two slides, the team or the problem. If you have very little traction, very little product, very little progress, it's a pre-seed or seed stage, and you're leaning on the unique composition of the team. These are domain experts who've had incredible exits before, and they come from a great school, and they've got domain expertise in a great space, and they're uniquely qualified to do this thing. You might start with the team. Otherwise, you start with the problem, because a lot of founders I'm bumping into always start with this like paragraphs and paragraphs of an opportunity, and they're describing this big, hairy thing that they're extremely excited about. And the investor is left waiting for, in some cases, multiple slides or through the whole deck, wondering, like, what are these people actually doing? What tactically are they solving to create a wedge into the world? I get a lot of pushback on this. A lot of founders will say, oh, I can't fit my idea into a discrete, concrete problem or it undersells what I'm doing. And firstly, I think that's false. I think you can describe most things in the context of a problem. But also, even if your idea is very, very big, you can start or must start with a concrete problem and then expand into adjacencies that get bigger and bigger and bigger. The other thing I've also bumped into a lot is there's a debate whether you should start with the big venture scale problem and then talk about the concrete traction of a specific wedge in the world, or the other way around. Should you start with a more conservative or tactical or near-term problem Describe how you're addressing that wedge really, really well, and then describe the adjacencies where this might move into something really exciting in venture scale. I think reasonable people can have reasonable arguments about that sequencing. Do you start small and describe how big this gets or describe a big vision and then describe the small steps you've made on that journey? I typically prefer talking about a very concrete problem a very irrefutable wedge into the world and describing the very best traction or de-risking validation that I've done. And then once I've convinced the investor that I know how to execute, I know how to build something that delivers value in the world, and I understand my wedge very, very well, that I have a really logical set of adjacencies that cracks open to the world into a massive venture scale opportunity. That's my personal preference, but I think you can make reasonable arguments to go either way. I think the sequencing doesn't matter so much as that you need both. And I think it's often been described as the ABZ or ABZ for our American friends, where you need to talk about where you are now, what comes next, and what your end goal is. You don't need all the stuff in between because you don't know what it is. So actually, I prefer the other way, stylistically. I like to say, 
here's the big picture. This is what we're going to be one day. And this is what we're doing right now to get there. That lands better with me because you start with a sort of inspirational piece and then it sets the context for the thing you're doing right now, which is more prosaic and dull probably. But, you know, I guess what order the slides are in and how exactly you tell that story, to your point, Chris, is less important that both those components are there. Now, another thing that I've seen that is a really common mistake, I actually think at seed stage, is to spend a lot of time showing off what you built. I literally mean I've seen decks with lots of screenshots and lists of features and so on. Of course, I care about what your product is and what it does, but that is not traction. Anybody can take a bit of money and build an app. What you are selling me is not the thing that you've built. It's the things that you've learned. It's the things that you've de-risked. It's the traction that you have. If showing off certain aspects of the app are illuminating, then of course, screenshots are great. Visual is good. It's good texture, but it's not the thing that you're selling. If you go too deep saying, you know, our app does this and it does this and it does that and it does the other thing and we offer messaging and we offer generative AI. And I'm like, why do I care? You're not pitching to a customer. Even then, that's not the right way to do it, by the way. But you are pitching to an investor. So think about the things they need to know that you are de-risking to venture scale. And screenshots, well, that ain't it, right? That's not what you need to know. Yeah, I typically have like one slide about how it works. And it's usually like three bullets. People sign up, they do X, Y, Z, and they get A, B, C. That's pretty much it. So the investor can imagine in their mind like, okay, I roughly get how this app works. Let's move on. Exactly. Like show how it works, but it's supporting context. I think maybe that's the point is it's supporting context. It's not the main line of your pitch. And I've seen too many pitches where it's like, look at this cool thing we've built. Another thing. You know, I think it's worth, especially at this stage, to talk about the broad macro trends from which you're going to benefit. But don't overdo it. Not every pitch needs to mention AI. But if you're genuinely using AI, if you can legitimately hook into a secular trend, then you should absolutely mention it. What you shouldn't do is try to wedge your product in or your vision into some trend that it doesn't really organically fit into. Like, you know, last year you were talking about the blockchain and this year you're talking about AI. Don't be that person. And there's nothing worse than buzzword bingo, right? Yeah. It's like we are some AI based on the crypto blockchain to serve NFTs to the right user using Bitcoin. It's like, for the love of God, focus on the problem you're solving. And if a particular trend or technology happens to be the very best way to solve that problem, then sure, mention it. I've heard founders complain that they're working in an area that's like not sexy or that's off trend with investors. And I'm going to come back to this, but you always find contrarian investors. So I think the really important thing here is to be authentic and true to yourself in the sense of as a startup, right? You don't want to pretend to be what you're not. You want to be unashamedly what you are. And then you need to find the investors who, regardless of broader trends and broader fashions, are excited by what you are. As you were talking, Yanev, I thought to myself, I would hang a lantern on it. I'd have the first slide be, you know, we are an AI blockchain NFT startup. Just kidding. Yeah, that'd be fun. We're building a serious thing. Here's what it really looks like yep. and here's why it matters. Here's a seemingly boring problem we're solving using seemingly boring tech, but we really care about it and we have a unique insight to the world. Another thing that I'm a big fan of is to work backwards from series A. We're going to talk about valuation in a moment, which is another area where there's a lot of FUD being spread at the moment by people giving bad advice. But remember, when you're raising a round, you're not just talking about the de-risking you've done. You need to talk about the de-risking you're going to do. Like the purpose of raising the round is to do that next level of de-risking. So when you're raising seed, you need to be thinking about, okay, the point at which I raise series A or the point at which, you know, perhaps seed is the last round you'll ever raise. You think you'll be able to get to cash flow positive and self-funded from there on. 
Either way, work backwards from that point, whether it's the next raise or freedom. What are you going to do? What are you going to work on to get to the next stage? So not necessarily, again, not a list of features or things you're going to build, but an approach. What is the risk that you're going to tackle, actually, that gives you more confidence by the end that you are going to be that venture scale business? Personally, I don't see this very often. I don't say this as a VC, but personally, as an investor, I'd like that to be quite explicit to say, you know, buy series A, this is what we hope to have achieved, because that shows that you understand the iterative nature of what you're doing and shows a level of sophistication to me rather than we're raising money and we're going to spend that money on engineers and on marketing, you know, as a typical use of funds. It's like, we're going to spend this money to learn this thing, to de-risk things in this way. Yeah. The format I love to use for this is a roadmap slide, which has, what are we going to go do next? and where we think Series A sits along that timeline. And it certainly might include big shifts in the product or big shifts in the business. But to your point, Yanev, you can and should add along the bottom, what do we learn or de-risk or achieve that unlocks that milestone on the timeline of a Series A? So we'll talk about use of funds in a moment in the context of valuation. But just one thing that maybe is a little personal bugbear of mine, but is still important. And we did talk about it in our fundraising series, but it's about the TAM total addressable market. That is nearly something you have to put in there to show that your venture scale, you're like, this is a trillion dollar opportunity. And you know, this is a hundred trillion dollar market in China. And if you get 1% of that market, it's a trillion dollars. And I'm laughing because it's just such an absolute load of BS. And the truth is, that all TAM numbers are BS numbers. They tend to be overestimates, but they can also actually be underestimates because they're based on a whole bunch of crude assumptions about how you define the market, what the size of that market is, what is a reasonable amount of that market to capture. And of course, quite often when you want to change how industries work, because you are a venture scale startup, all of those numbers by definition are legacy and things you want to disrupt. Talking about Uber, that's nearly a canonical example of if you treat the taxi industry as the total addressable market, that's too small. But much more common is to have one that's too big. So again, going back to first principles, what I would argue is that a sophisticated pitch deck is trying to paint with confidence that this is a venture scale opportunity. And so of course that means you need to understand the potential size of the market that you will eventually be addressing. But I think giant numbers don't make you look credible. They just make you look lazy. You should really have an insightful analysis of the opportunity and probably put a number there that does seem to be a convention. But the most important thing is to talk clearly and with a level of understanding about why this is a venture scale opportunity because they're trying to see is this big enough to generate a return for me which means is this big enough to have a revenue base that can support a multi-hundred million dollar valuation so that's what they're actually asking when they're asking for a TAM. if you think about uber for example the way i'd think about the market opportunity slide is let's say for the sake of argument we're starting in london i would have probably a few concentric circles Here's the taxi industry in London, and here's professional driving services, livery, you know, bus, what have you, in Europe, and here's how much is spent on cars and moving around globally. If you think just about taxi in London, in our launch city, like this is a pretty meaty thing to bite into. And then if you think about Europe in general and transport in general, this starts to get very, very interesting. But what we ultimately want to tackle is logistics and transportation globally. And that starts to get very, very interesting. Now, what is addressable there and what does that really look like? Who fucking knows? Got no idea. But this is the kind of pools of money we're tapping into that are really interesting. And that's, of course, a top-down analysis, right? Like what are those buckets of money? Broadly speaking, what are those trends? And then you can do some bottom-up stuff. 
if you think about the business model, you think about the number of trips, you think about how much of a dent in the universe we can make, here are the kind of magnitudes we're talking about. Now, let's talk about valuation because that's the other area where I've heard a lot of BS advice going out there at the moment. There's no doubt that valuations have been on a downward trend, although less so at the early stages. But the important thing to be aware of is when you talk about this concept of valuation at early stages, at seed, valuation is a fairly meaningless term, right? Let's say you've sold 20% of the company for $2 million free money. That means the implied valuation there is $10 million. If 20% of your company is worth $2 million, then 100% of your company is worth $10 million. And so there is that technical meaning of valuation. But if you think about how mature companies are valued on the stock market or at late growth stage investment rounds, where it's like multiples of revenue or you know multiples of EBITDA or financial metrics, that simply does not apply at seed stage. And anyone who tells you it does is dumb money at best, right? So here's the way to think about valuation at seed stage. Investors tend to have a target ownership percentage and a target round size. At seed stage is typically, I'd say, Chris, what, between 15 and 25% total size yep. for a lead investor minimum 10% ownership percentage. Mm -hmm. So that means that the amount of equity you're selling is within a fairly narrow band. And then the other ingredient, like I said, it's the amount you sell and the amount of money you sell it for that implies a valuation. So the other question is, how much money do you need? And coming back to what we were saying before, you need to be thinking about that series A or on rarer occasions that like cash flow break even or whatever it is, you need to focus on how much money you need to get there. And again, another classic ingredient in a pitch deck is the use of funds. And often it's like, oh, we're going to spend 40% on engineering and 40% on marketing. And again, I don't give a shit. Like, what are you going to spend it on in terms of de-risking? I don't care about your org chart, not as an investor. I care about what are the things that you need to prove to be able to raise series A and, you know, with a little bit of wriggle room, but not too much, how much money is that going to cost you? And then the valuation falls out as the function of that. So the only real place where you can say, well, valuations are going down is that there is a greater demand for discipline. So what you might be saying to yourself, what investors might be saying to you, and therefore you should be saying to yourself is, can I get to that series A in a tighter, more disciplined way? And therefore ask for a smaller amount of money. That's the way you get your valuation down. Not by selling a bigger chunk of your company, then your cap table is screwed. It's going to mess you up in future rounds. And certainly do not try to get to a valuation in a metric-based way. Do not say, oh, you know, I'm a SaaS company. I need to have a million dollars of ARR so I can get a 10X multiple and a $10 million valuation. Anybody who's thinking about your seed stage company like that, and apparently there are plenty of investors who are thinking that way, just stay away from them because they're idiots. You couldn't agree more. The only caveat I would add is that many unsophisticated founders, first-time founders outside of the Valley are already asking for too little. So when Yanev talks about asking for less and being more disciplined, I think implied there is he's talking about sophisticated operators or operators who are used to working in a capital rich environment and who are used to asking for millions of dollars in their seed stage. I'm often bumping into founders who are doing the opposite. They're trying to ask for as little money as possible, thinking that it's easier to get a yes. If I just fit myself into a little hole, it's like a bank loan. The bank is more likely to say I'm allowed to have the loan. And so if you are an experienced founder looking to raise the next seed stage for your next company and you're used to asking for millions of dollars at a massive valuation, you should be thinking about more discipline in a smaller race. If you're a first-time founder who is just desperately trying to scrape together some yeses and who have made the mistake of thinking that you need to fit yourself into the smallest possible hole, 
then you need to be asking for more money. You need to be asking for the right amount of money, given the right level of discipline and effective execution, to actually get to de-risk the things you need to de-risk and raise your Series A. And that number needs to be credibly sized based on the ambition and scope and opportunity of your startup. So if you've told this incredible story about taking over one-time use products globally to create a circular economy, Yanev like circular. Yes. And then you say, I just need like $200,000. <laughs> and you're just like, you don't know what the hell you're doing. And so I'm not going to give you any money because you don't understand the business you're building and the money you're asking for is too small. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's actually a really important point and it reminds me of one of the conversations I've had with one of my portfolio founders, which is that it can seem kind of arrogant or something to ask for millions of dollars, especially if you're not used to this game. My advice is actually to be, I use the word cocky. You don't want to be arrogant. You don't want to be a dickhead, but you kind of want to think you're pretty good as you're going into this, right? That you are selling something that's worth buying. Otherwise, you won't succeed. And you know, for those of you who watch Silicon Valley, I think of it as sort of the Ehrlich Bachman approach. You don't want to go all the way to like, you know, but you do want to go in there thinking, I am selling a valuable asset here, right? I'm providing investment in a valuable asset and I'm pretty good. And these people will want to be a part of this. What you said is essentially, Yanev, it's not a loan from a bank. They're not giving you money. You are selling an asset. You're selling a piece of your company. So you have to be confident that the thing you have is valuable and worth buying. It's worth trading paper for cash. It's not a mental model. It's a reality. And the implicit mental model a lot of founders go into is more like a bank loan. I have one final point, Chris, that I wanted to make in closing this up, which is to be bold and to be contrarian. Again, this comes from people saying, oh, I've heard so-and-so VC fund is only investing at seed stage in companies that have revenue. Well, bully for them. And this is, you know, I'm talking to a company that's pre-revenue and they're treating that as saying, okay, that means we're not ready to raise. And that's obviously untrue, right? And the point I want to make here is there are many investors out there and you don't need everyone to believe in you. In fact, it's very rare to get everyone to believe in you. And if everyone believes in you, that's actually a bit of a weird anomaly that you want to understand better, I'd be honest. You just need someone to believe in you. And so you want to be a little bit contrarian because a lot of the best investors try to be contrarian. Why? Because contrarian investment is where the best returns are, right? If you are investing in something that no one else is interested in investing in, but you have a unique insight there, then that makes you a good investor, right? It makes you more likely to have good returns. So don't try to fit yourself into the cookie cutter of what you think or what you hear certain high profile investors are looking for. Be confident that you are selling a valuable asset to that other point, and then find the investors who see the world your way, who can see the value in what you're selling, rather than twisting yourself into a pretzel to fit what you think some investor who's just obviously not the right investor for you is looking for. We use the metaphor of you're selling, you're not asking for money. With sales, it's repeatable, right? You sell a widget multiple, multiple times, and you're hoping that there is a market out there for your widget, and you want it to be repeatable and scalable. Perhaps a better metaphor is your dating, looking for a partner, right? You're looking for someone who believes in you, who you believe in, who is going to be the right partner for you along the journey of building your business. And so you do not, typically, if you're a confident person looking for a life partner, you don't want to be going out on dates, lying about who you are, because you'll just end up with someone who ultimately you're just going to get a divorce, right? You want to present earnestly and honestly, perhaps in some polished way, but still earnest and honest about who you are. And hopefully the investor is doing the same in return. 
And then you kind of fall in love. You decide that you're the right partners for the journey. It is really about finding that partner. So just like dating, you'll find tens or hundreds of no's, no from you and no from them or no from both of you before you find the person you want to settle down with and have little baby products with. So really, you should come into the conversation with a bit of clarity that you're vetting them as much as they're vetting you. Yeah, that's actually a great example, because also in both cases, you're going to see a lot of rejection. And that's another reason for cockiness. It's shorthand for knowing and being confident that you have genuine value so that the rejection doesn't hit you hard, because all that means is there's a misalignment between what they're looking for and the genuine value that you're offering. It's not saying that you're a bad investment or that you're a bad partner. So be ready for lots of rejection. Even the best rounds contain lots of rejection. A typical round contains an absolute metric fuck ton of rejection, but that's okay as long as you find you're the one, right? Yeah. And, you know, to continue to push this metaphor beyond all recognition, <laughs> to summarize the episode, I think the first part of the episode was work on yourself, right? Like mm. go to the gym, shave, read poetry, have an opinion and be a good date. And then the second part of the podcast was really go out and find a partner who values the same things you do and appreciates the investments you've made in improving yourself. And then you go on a journey together. And it's really no more or less magical than that, right? And so you need to have the right frame of mind, the right investment in de-risking your journey and then bringing a partner along on that journey with you. The last thing I will say about fundraising is, and this is where the metaphor of dating breaks down, you may not have hundreds of thousands of investors the same way you might have hundreds of thousands of customers, but you certainly may have two, three, four, five investors, particularly at a seed stage where you're having a lot of angel checks. You might have 10 or 20 angel investors. And I'll often see founders who'll get some kind of offer from an investor and they'll go, well, should I take this or should I not? And it becomes a binary decision. What you really want to do is leverage that. Say, okay, I now have a lead investor. I'm going to go get other investors and fill out the round, or I'm going to have these investors compete with each other. I'm going to socialize that I have a term sheet. Can I get a better term sheet? And so you don't want to be playing games for too long, but this is a deal. It's a deal that you're structuring. You don't necessarily take the first offer and take it to the bank and that's the end. You want to pull together a round with a lead investor and a couple of other investors around the table. So this is another very common mistake that I see where the founders are not putting that round together. They're just taking a binary decision to yes or no to a term sheet. All right, Chris, I think it's time to wrap this bad boy up. So for everyone listening who's maybe considering raising at seed stage, I hope this advice was useful and genuine best of luck out there. It's rough, but there's still a lot of great investors making investments at this stage. So be bold, be yourself and find your perfect match. So Chris, perhaps someone's looking to raise a round and they're trying to position themselves ideally, or they're just trying to get better at what they do. I know that one of the things you do is provide help to startups at all stages. So if people are interested in working with you, how can they get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. So I have carved out time to help founders with exactly these kind of topics. Feel free to reach out to me. Visit chrissard.com slash advisory where you can learn more about how that all works and you can fill out the form and I'll get in touch. Fantastic. Yanev, how can people find you on the internet? I mostly hang around on LinkedIn, trying to be less dull than your average LinkedIn bear. I love to get connections from startup podcast listeners. So yeah, hit me up there and I'd love to get a conversation going. 
And final thing is, just to remind you all about the Startup Podcast Pact. If you've listened to more than an episode or two of the Startup Podcast and you are getting value from it, then you have signed up to this deal, which is that you need to follow us, rate us and review us in your listening app and give us a little shout out on LinkedIn. And I would like to actually call out, we have many listeners in the US, all our friends in the USA. If you are listening to this and you're like, damn, I'm in the US. Well, this is the time to take action on the pact. Tell your friends about us. Leave a review. We really thank you for your help. Awesome, Yanev. All right, we'll catch you in the next one. Yep. Thanks, Chris. Hope your voice keeps recovering. The Startup Podcast is proud to be partnered with Google Cloud. These folks have really pulled out all the stops to help startups. Up to 200k in compute credit over two years, technical training, and business support provided by startup experts. We use Google Cloud at Circular, and it's a delight. I'm happy to recommend it to anybody building a startup. It fits with our values, too. Google Cloud is 100% powered by renewable energy. Go to Google slash TSP, that's G-O-O dot G-L-E slash TSP for the Startup Podcast to learn more and access all the best offers.